and we are live. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Sharp End Podcast. I have here with me Mr. Christian Beckwith, who is, in my eyes, a freaking badass guy. Um, and he is the host and creator of the 90 Pound Rucksack Podcast, which is one of my three all-time favorite podcasts. So, of course, I had to beg and plead for him to be on the Sharp End Podcast so he can share a little bit about what he does to you all. So welcome to the show, Christian, if you don't mind introducing yourself to my listeners. Thank you, Ashley. Quite an introduction. Uh, <laughs> if, I, if I recall, you didn't have to beg or plead. I'm happy to be here and honored, actually. Um, since you've been in the industry a hell of a lot longer than I have. But um, yeah, so, so my name's Christian. I live in Jackson, Wyoming. I've been here about 30 years, moved here to climb. And um, it's actually kind of a wretched place to, <laughs> to climb since it snows for, well, it's snowing right now and it started in November and it hasn't stopped. And um, when I got here, I was sort of shocked to find that there wasn't a climbing anything. There wasn't a climbing entity and organization. So I, I started one in 1994, the year after I got here called the Wayward Mountaineers. And that kind of, everything took off from there. Um, I started my first magazine called the Mountain Yodel. Um, and it was just an attempt to try to capture the amazing photography and the writing and the art of the climbers of Jackson Hole. And then as these things happen in crazy ways, um, uh, Yvonne Chouinard, who I found in the phone book, called up and said, hey, I'm going to start a magazine. You cold called him? <laughs> I called he was That's the book. so he, badass. He's probably still, well, I was too stupid to know that you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> but he said, yeah, come on up for dinner. And um, he ended up just sitting me down. He listened to everything I had to say, which was, you know, a 20, a 20 something's rantings. And I told him I wanted to start a magazine. And he said, oh, yeah, don't do that. Oh, it's just a terrible waste of time. Just Xerox a couple of pages and staple them together and hand them out to your friends. And I was just so crushed that he told me that, that I just went ahead and did it anyway. And, and um, it was called The Mountain Yodel. I left it on his doorstop and or doorstep and uh let's see h adams carter who had edited the american alpine journal for 36 years dropped dead of a brain aneurysm at the breakfast table after having gotten the american alpine journal off to the press i should note and ivan threw my name in the hat to edit it which was utterly absurd i can't believe he did that and they gave me the job and that that's truly the epitome of absurdity because i did not know what i was doing so i ended up uh, though (laughs) well yeah i somehow got through um edited the american (laughs) alpine journal for six years and then i started a magazine called alpinist and um since then it's just been sort of a roller coaster of of things I, i um coordinated something called the Teton Boulder Park, which is, we don't have climbing. We don't have really good, we have, we don't have really good cragging here. So we built a, a well, there's Teton park Canyon on the other side of the pass, which is pretty sweet. I've climbed a lot of routes in Teton Canyon yep. at the base of Targhee. Yep. We ain't Boulder, Colorado. Let's just, <laughs> it, let's just put it that way. So the bouldering park was like, you can go, like I can leave my house and get a pump in an hour. Um, so that was really cool. And um, yeah, I, I started a, a conservation organization called Shift that was looking at nature as a social determinant of health. 
I started the um, Teton Climbers Coalition a couple of years ago, and that was to make sure that we actually get a decent climbing gym. We don't even have a climbing gym in this town. It's absolutely hard. It's pretty surprising. I know we all look like Tyrannosaurus Rex. You know, we got these char these charging rhino legs, and then we have these these little arms. You know, where we climb like five six, which is basically what you could do if you're in the Tetons because there's really good mountain five six routes um, and five seven and five eight, and but none of us know how to climb basically. So I'm you know I'm my favorite all time climb I've ever done is Irene's Ret. That's so great! Isn't that stunning? Oh my, blowing my hair back. Whew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just airy. That is one of the best routes in the Tetons for sure. Yeah, but so you're we right, do it's not bouldering. It's not bouldering. We do have good. Stop ragging. <laughs> well, what, the, the only problem with the climbing in Jackson and in the Tetons is that every single year, this happens every single year, they move the mountains back a quarter mile and they raise them up 250 feet. And it's happened mm. every single year since I've been here. So it's just gotten huh. harder and the days have gotten longer. Yeah. And I don't know who's doing it, but it's consistent. <laughs> Everybody I've talked to says the same thing. Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the little people, but you can't talk about the little people. Anyway, well, thanks. That was quite the introduction. You are, yeah, I mean, I read your bio online. I'm just like, you freaking kidding me? This guy, what, what has this guy not done? So, um, yeah, super, super honored to have you here. And again, I'm so stoked to um, have you share about your podcast. Again, it's called the 90 Pound Rucksack. And yeah, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Um, tell us uh, what the 90 Pound Rucksack is all about. Well, in, in uh, a very abbreviated form, it is the story of a fellow called, named John McCown and the 10th Mountain Division and really the dawn of outdoor recreation in America. So I had been working on a book about the climbing history of the Tetons, and this is just my place, and it's kind of what I built my whole life around, and there is no book on the on the climbing history. And I'd gotten all the way up through the war, so... September 1st, 1941, and I transcribed the summit registers. So there's a, there's a website called Teton Summit Registers, and it's, take, it's got photos of every single entry in all the summits, summit registers up until, I think, the 70s. So I translated the ones up until the war. And September 1st, 1941, Joe and Paul Stetner had left an entry in the summit register of the Grand. The next entry in the summit register of the grand was September 10th, 1945. Wow. And it was by Paul Stetner. And in between there was nothing. And so I'd been been using the summit registers as a way to start because I wanted to understand the ecosystem, like who's climbing here and what are they, what are they climbing? Who are they climbing with? And that was really cool. It just gave me a, a much, um, this incredible insight into the community of climbers, you know, coming up into the war, but then the war hit and everything switched to a halt. And so I had known that the, the climbers and the skiers of America, a lot of them had gone into something called the 10th mountain division. And so this was the U S army's world war two unit of climbers and skiers who trained for three, three and a half years to fight, the Axis powers in cold and mountainous terrain. And so 
I started doing what I'd been doing all the way along in my, my history for the Teton book. And that was just reading the American Alpine Journal. That was my first stop because it is the journal of record. It had all the significant things that were happening. And in 1946, they had something called the, um, the war edition. And in the war edition were all these articles by people like H. Adams Carter, who I took the journal over from, and Bob Bates and Bradford Washburn and Charlie Houston and Bill House talking about the contributions of America's climbers to the war effort. And so I was blown away and I said, oh, well, I guess that's the, that's the story is the climbers, America's climbers were this integral part of the 10th Mountain Division. And then I went to the civilian histories and lo and behold, they didn't mention the climbers. And I was like, huh. what do you mean? What happened? And so I kind of plunged in and tried to figure it out. And I did figure out how to tell, I'm still working, you know, I was thinking I was working on this book about Teton climbing history. And I figured out how to tell the entire story of the 10th Mountain Division from the perspective of Teton climbers. And then importantly, how the 10th Mountain Division influenced Teton climbing after the war, except for the signature offensive in Italy when the 10th deployed in December 1944. And that was the taking of something called Riva Ridge. And it was a strategic- Ridge. Riva, R-I-V-A. Yeah. And I can talk a little bit more about that, but that was a strategic point in something called the Gothic Line. This is what Hitler used to tie up allied forces for eight months that could have otherwise been deployed elsewhere in the war and hastened the end of the war. And so the U.S. Army's Fifth Army had been working on it for, um, they'd thrown something like 150,000 soldiers at it for, for eight months at a time without success. Because it's a long story, but the key point on, in the Gothic line was something called Mount Belvedere. And the problem with taking Mount Belvedere, which um, Allied forces had done a number of times before, is that there was something right next to it called Reaver Ridge. And Reaver Ridge was higher. It was precipitous on the eastern side. On the western side, it was gentle enough that the Germans could drive up and resupply themselves. But that eastern side was steep enough that the Germans thought that they didn't have to defend it because it could not be climbed. And so they thought. The, 10th, the 10th Mountain Division climbed it. That broke the Gothic line. And when I was reading the military history of the deployment to Italy, I, heard, I found this name, John McCown, who led the hardest line on Reaver Ridge. All the lines on Reaver Ridge, the, um, the 86th Mountain Infantry climbed it under cover of darkness um, with, I can't remember if they didn't have ammo in their guns at that point because they couldn't risk uh, a gunshot alerting the Germans to their presence. But the 700 soldiers climbed it by n at night under cover of darkness in February, February 18th and 19th, 1945, and took it without a casualty. And when I was reading the military history, the person that led the hardest pit, the hardest line on it, which was to a summit called Monte Sarasica, was a fellow named John McCown. And when I read that name, the light bulb went off and I went back through my summit registers and I found the name John McCown. And in 1939, he was all over the Tetons and he was back here in 1940. 
And lo and behold, I found a way to tell the entire story of the tent from the perspective of Teton climbing. So that's how I got into it. And then that's I was talking really, to- Wow. And so that's- Wait, I that's, just have a quick question. So, yeah. so these guys, these, these uh, soldiers are climbing Riva Ridge they're essentially it's a, they're putting up an they're putting up first ascent on Reba Ridge, right? That's essentially what they're doing. Um, well, it's so it's not a climb that we would consider to be um, like it's not El Cap. I live in a place, you know, I live in Jackson, Wyoming, and right behind me is a mountain called um, Snow King. And when I'm when I'm thinking about Reba Ridge, I'm thinking of Snow King. It's a steep, okay. Um, it's a steep mountain. It's about two thousand feet high this flank, this Eastern escarpment, and it has steps, these limestone and shale steps. And the reason that the Germans didn't guard it was because they knew that an entire unit, which would be necessary to take the top, could not climb it. Or in their estimation, a unit could not climb it. And so that's what the 10th did. After all the training that they'd done, they climbed it en masse and took the, took the German positions on top without a casualty. And so this fellow, John McCown, had, he either re- reconnoitered just Monte Saracica, he may have actually reconnoitered all the routes, all four of the routes up Riva Ridge. And on Monte Saracica, which was the, the hardest one, he fixed six pitches. So these guys are going up under cover of darkness, ideally in total silence. And they are coming to these steps and they're having to, my assumption is they're going hand over hand. So this isn't like five, eight, five, nine climbing. It's probably gotcha, like five, okay. two, three, four. But there's six feet of snow on the ground. It's February 18th and 19th. So the dead are cold. It's yeah. cold. And they've got to do it. And they have they've got it's a long story, but they never got the equipment that had been designed for them at great expense over the course of two years. So they were in standard issue, army issue, um, clothing and boots, things like that. And they were able to get to the top and and take it. And that broke the Gothic line. And that opened the way for the 10th Mountain Division to go all the way to Lago di Garda. And they precipitated the German surrender of Italy, which helped hasten the end of the war in Europe. And John McCown was the fellow that helped break that with his leadership on Monte Saracica. That's freaking badass. It was so cool. And anyway, so I was, <laughs> that's a long story. So I was talking to, um, do you know Mark Sinnott? I don't know if you've ever I run don't. into him. No. Yeah, so you know who he is? I don't. Oh my goodness. So he was, <laughs> he's a um, New York Times bestselling author and um, he's a dirtbag. And um, I'd known him At least since, we have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd like him. He's a good time. Um I think in, when I took over the journal in 96, I put him on the cover because he was doing all these badass ascents in Baffin Island. And I've known him, you know, since then. And when I was trying to figure out how the hell to do my Teton book, I was calling everybody I knew and just doing interviews. And that's how I met you. I just out of the blue called you up and just tried to pick your brain to figure out what you knew. And so I did this with a bunch of folks and um, Mark had some great advice. He's like, look, dude, because I was going to self-publish this book on, on Teton climbing. He's like, you're going to get like 200 people <laughs> read this book. If you're going to do it, learn the rules of the game, learn how to play them well, and go out there, find 
a title, find a book that's actually going to be compelling and write that. And I was like, huh, that's probably really good advice. And so then I put the Teton climbing book on hold and I started working on this one about the 10th mountain division as told through the narrative vehicle of John McCown. And so I've got, um, his niece has been helping out with all his, all the documents, all his letters, the expedition logbooks that he had from an expedition he did to the coast range in 1941. And now I'm telling the story of the 10th mountain division through him. And I'm looking specifically at, um, how the 10th mountain division influenced the outdoor recreation in in America after the war, during and after the war. And so that's just become, um, a, an ass kicking, uh, mm-hmm. I get up in the morning and I get my ass kicked all the way until the end of the day. And then I repeat. Well, by your bio, it sounds like that's par for the course. Yeah, but I have a short memory problem, short term memory <laughs> problem. So I don't that remember anything. <laughs> I, I honestly can't remember what happened, you know, earlier than this morning. Mm. Perfect. It's, it's a new day every day. It seems to work. Yeah. <laughs> when did you start this project? Oh, my God. I mean, I started on the Teton Climbing book in August of 2021. Okay. And then I think I I got, I wrote, you know, the chapter on the 10th Mountain Division um, was a 70-page chapter. And I finished that right at, it was right before we went out for New Year's of 2021. And then I think of August, May and June of last year, I finally made the decision to focus on the 10th Mountain Division. So I've been working in earnest on that since then. And, you know, I came from a publishing background. And so I was interested in how the hell do you make a living on this shit? Because the formula that I was aware of back when I was doing Alpinist, for example, it's not, it doesn't work anymore. And the one thing that seemed to be growing was podcasting. So I figured if I were, if I could put together a, um, a podcast that doubled as real time research for the work that I was doing on the book, I could perhaps build an audience for the book and sell it directly to them when I'm done. So that's, that's the, that's the idea. We'll see if it works out or not. So that's sort of the inspiration of the podcast and like the, bo- the podcast birth birth out of your dream of making this book. Yeah. And I also mm-hmm. know that if I don't have a deadline, I don't get anything done. So mm-hmm. I decided to put a gun mm-hmm. to my own head and I stated publicly, which is absolutely idiotic, that I would do one episode a month and I pulled it off for the first, you know, four or five episodes, at which point. The only way I can do one a month is if I don't, if I stop exercising entirely and if I stop going into the mountains, like if I do that, which is not, not, that's not a negotiable, that's not negotiable at all. I mean, you can't, you can't do that for your mental health and your physical health. You can't give that up. No, no, but I did for a while and I just became like a fat blob and I was unhappy and. I finally was like, fuck this shit, man. I, I got to figure out and I'm making nobody. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to pace myself. And so here, this episode that I'm working on now, I've been working on it since um, the beginning of February. 
and we're already in the middle of March. And that's just so, the time it takes to do this. So that's a month, that's a month and a half. So that's one episode. So what's the average length of time that it takes you to make one episode, including interviews and production and editing and, and uh, yeah, tell me about, tell me that. Ugh. You don't want to know. <laughs> I do. I want. I want to know. I want to know. At well, average, give me ballpark. Boy, that's so hard to say. I mean, because I did all that initial research when I was writing the chapter, and now what I'm doing is, and I put together an advisory board of the foremost experts on the division, and so I've got them. You know, they're helping me with. I do interviews with them. They're the experts, and then I'm also using them to help like make sure that this is right. You know, I'm really concerned about historical accuracy. So the research as I go back beyond that superficial level that I used to write that chapter to go under the waves and man, it's an ocean under there. That takes a minimum of, uh, I would say like three weeks just to try to come up to speed on some of these topics. And then people got a week left in your month before we got to pump out an episode, Mister. No, I'm a week behind. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've written, I've, 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 I've written most of it, um, and I am getting close. But the the interviews. So I don't know how, if you found this, but it takes me a one hour a one hour interview takes me a full day to edit down into. The concise snippets so I understand the architecture of each interview and then I, I weave it through every episode and wherever we're missing insights that feel like they're essential to the story I weave those back in and so the whole thing just takes ridiculous amounts of time it's, mm -hmm. it's just which I'm sure is kind of the case for everyone but yeah, I had no idea I was getting into this. But you're also coming up with so much historical information and and you are stacking tons of interviews. So that also takes tons of time. I mean, just scheduling interviews takes time. So you really do have your hands full. And if you're, if you're planning on pumping out one episode a month, how, about how many episodes, I know the answer to this because I looked at your website, but for the listeners, about how many episodes is this show going to be? Well, I think when I started, I said 18 and that, yeah, I've never met a simple problem I haven't been able to complicate. So like, instead of starting <laughs> from episode one, I started with episode zero, which was the backstory to how I got into 90 pound rucksack. And then I got through episode one. So I did zero and one. And then I got to episode two. And with episode two, I wanted to look at the state of the art of climbing and skiing before the war. And unfortunately, just the skiing alone, there was so much history there. And it was fascinating. I mean, you know, I've skied since I was five. And I live in Jackson. You, you got to ski to go to the market practically. And we ski because that's what we have to do here. And um, the skiing history was just absolutely mind-boggling. I had no idea about the origins of American skiing. And so that turned into episode two, part one. And then I had to do episode two, part two, which was the climbing history in America before the war, so that we could understand the influence and impact that the 10th Mountain Division, Division had on climbing and skiing 
during and after the war. You needed to know where we were coming from in order to know how they changed where we were headed. So I've said 18 episodes. I mean, I'm looking at this one episode I'm doing now and I'm like, I either break it up into two or it's a two hour episode. And I think I'm just going to well, go with a two hour too, episode. As a, as a podcast host, can, you know, are your listeners going to listen to two hours? I mean, that's, that's a tough one to decide on what to do, cut it in half or just do one long one. That's yeah. I know. Maybe episode four, part one. Right. And part two. So it could and, be 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. <laughs> but if this continues, if this continues, this is like my life's work. And yeah, So you're looking is, at 2025 is when you may or may not be finished. It'd be really good to be done before the decade was up. You'll be poor by then. I'm poor now, so <laughs> how do you, what is it, how do you make a small fortune, start with a large one, and I didn't have a large one to start with, so, yeah, we'll see. We're going to make don- a donate goes. button. Donate here, people, for a 90-pound rucksack. <laughs> with my little cup, yeah, on the side of the street, I could do that. May I have another, please? Yes. <laughs> so, Christian, tell me why, why the 90-pound rucksack, like, in, in your eyes, why is this important to you? Why do you feel like you want to get this information out to the world? Above and beyond my OCD personality? Yes, above and beyond that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating look at the something that we take for granted. You know, we're climbers and skiers. And I think it's easy for us to just assume that climbing and skiing have been around forever. And a lot of us, you know, like me, I, I had a cursory understanding of the history of of climbing and and much less of one of the history of skiing when I got into this. And to look at where we are today, so it's a $384 billion a year industry. That's bigger than utilities. It's bigger than ag and the American economy. Where did it come from? And nobody's ever really written the story of the dawn of outdoor rec in America. And I think that for us to know where we're headed, we have to know where we came from. And and it's frankly fucking fascinating to know mm. about, you know, I mean, just the skiing alone. I had no idea that, did you know it was all the Norwegians coming here in the 1880s as part of the wave of immigration? They're the ones who <laughs> brought cross country and ski jumping from Norway, Scandinavians in general, but particularly the Norwegians. And Those that are my people, by the way, your people brought skiing to America. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. And, but that was the predominant the the predominant forms of skiing in America before nineteen in into up until the 1920s was cross country and ski jumping. That's it. And what I didn't know was that the reason that we ski the way we ski today was because of a mountaineer named Arnold Lunn, who'd come up with a realization while he was in Switzerland, which is where he made his home that climbers needed two kinds of skiing to climb peaks in the Alps. One of them was to get you up from the valley, up through the forests, in this snaky line through the trees, and then you got the tree line, and then you went in a more direct route to the summit, and then you reversed it. So you skied down in more or less a direct line, and then you hit the forest and you went around the trees as you went back down to the valley floor. So he came up with two forms of skiing, downhill and slalom. And he created races. 
to perfect the skill sets of the mountaineers so that they could tag the tops of these peaks. I didn't know that. I didn't know that skiing as we know it today was born out of climbing. And I also didn't know that the, um, the technique that swept the world in the twenties and that really made skiing in America explode in America in uh, before the, before the war. So in the 1930s was the responsibility of a man named Hannes Schneider, who is an Austrian who developed something called the Arlberg technique in, um, Arlberg, Anton du Arlberg, and this is in Austria, and he had perfected a, he'd begun to tinker with a technique that allowed people to ski in a more efficient and effective manner in the Alps in the 19 teens. And then during World War I, when he was a soldier in the Austrian army, he'd sort of perfected his, his, this technique that came to be known as the Arlberg technique. And it was kind of a crouch and it had a swoopy shoulder turn to it. And this crouch and swoopy shoulder turn was um, was critical for skiing in places like the Alps. And so, you know, wealthy Americans who were going to the Alps for their winter vacations learned about the Arlberg technique, began to bring it back over to the States. Hannes Schneider sent some of his emissaries, the, who, the, the disciples of the Arlberg technique, to the U.S. to open up schools here for the teaching of this Arlberg technique, which came out of the, the Austrian army, and it went ballistic. It swept the world, and suddenly everybody was using the Arlberg technique, and they were skiing in downhill and slalom form, and suddenly cross-country and ski jumping, which had predominated in America, were displaced by this German and Teutonic and Austrian form of skiing which was ironic because we were about to go to war with Germany <laughs> and Austria. And um, it just goes like all of this, I just found so absolutely fascinating. And I didn't know that in the 1930s, that this explosion in popularity that had been pushed primarily by the Auerberg technique and by the advent of downhill and solemn skiing and uh, fast track by the advent of snow trains which were the, for example, Boston and Maine's way to stave off depression during uh, bankruptcy during the Great Depression. They were taking people from Boston to New Hampshire to like meadows <laughs> with these cross-country skis right at the beginning of the 30s and um, just having them tromp around in the meadows. And this for them was a financial lifeline. And finally, people kind of realized that you could do something other than just tromp around in these meadows. You could actually go up and down hills. And then, <laughs> then in 1934, the first um, rope toes appeared and suddenly you didn't have to walk up to get you downhill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you could get carted up and skiing exploded. And before the war, there were between one and three million skiers in the United States. I had no idea it was that popular. I thought that perhaps it got started during the war. And the number of climbers, so I counted the various organizations in the country. So the leading orgs were American Alpine Club and the Appalachian Mountain Club and the Sierra Club, Colorado Mountain Club, Mazamas, Mountaineers. And then there were like the Yale Mountaineering Club and Dartmouth Mountaineering Club, Harvard Mountaineering Club. So I counted up the memberships of all these various organizations, 12,000. And it. then that's it, 12,000. And then I took away all the people that are peak baggers, you know, just sort of walking up a volcano or, you know, if they're in the, 
if they're in the east walking up you know some of the the appalachian hills and i try to filter for the people that were actually capable of navigating technical fifth class terrain without killing themselves and i came up with 500 and so wow. I'm, I'm, in a, down. so I'm in a big fight with uh, John Middendorf, who's doing an amazing history, a deep, deep dive into the history of climbing gear called Mechanical Advantage. You got to check it out if you haven't already. It's absolutely stunning. And he insists that there were a thousand climbers, a thousand people capable of fifth class terrain. So, you know, split the difference. 750 climbers in America before the war. I would Tech- love to hear an episode with you two battling that one out. I know. That'd be, yeah. You are a wealth of knowledge. That's why Talk- I love your podcast so much because it's just so informative. Like there's things like I, my mind is blown almost every single sentence that comes out of your mouth when I listen to your podcast. It's epic. You have an Thank epic you. podcast. Yeah. I think I'm the world glad- should know about it. It's so like, come on people. Uh, <laughs> the so cool. Thank you. <laughs> But yeah. it is fascinating. All this stuff is Absolutely. just so fascinating. And, you know, where I'm leaving off, John's going deeper. So if you think any of this is interesting, wait till he starts talking about steel. Like he is so into steel before the war and like the various how it was tempered. He goes down. I go down rabbit holes. He goes down whatever's beneath the rabbit holes. And he just he, <laughs> he has nobody's seen him because he's been down there for, you know, for well over a year now. But mechanical advantage, <laughs> check this stuff out. But the thing that was so fascinating was um, one of the reasons that the 10th Mountain Division was known primarily as a ski troop was because, number one, there weren't many climbers. I mean, you know, one to two million, maybe three million skiers in America before the war, you know, under a thousand technical climbers. It sort of makes sense that the division is known mostly for its, its skiing and its skiers. But because I read, you know, I started my my research by reading the American Alpine Journal, the war edition, I was aware of the fact that the climbers contributed disproportionately to the development of so many facets of the 10th Mountain Division that were critical to its, to its success. So H. Adams Carter, who was the editor of the journal for 36 years, made it into the Journal of Record, he was a polyglot. And... In 1939, the summer of 1939, he was in Switzerland with Bob Bates, another one of the Harvard Five. And these are the guys that really brought American climbing into the fore in the 1930s. They were with uh, Herman Ogie, who was, um, had the Ogies were the Swiss uh, mountaineering family. And they'd taken H. Adams Carter in as a student when he was 16. He was a polyglot. So he spoke German, he spoke French, he spoke um Italian. He spoke Spanish. I mean, he learned Balti on the approach to Nanda Devi in 1934 from his porters. I mean, the guy could pick up wow. languages like there was there was no it's a tomorrow. superpower. It, it was a superpower. He had so many superpowers. I never met him, but man, he sounded like a just a, such the nicest guy in the world. But he, um, so he was with Herman Hoagie and Bob Bates, and they observed the maneuvers of the Swiss mountain troops in July or August of 1939. They were like, huh, we might need some of those ourselves. And the problem with America at that time, particularly when you're talking about the military, 
was we were the 17th largest military in the world. We were right behind Austria, uh, sorry, Romania. <laughs> and we hadn't updated our cold weather fighting manual since 1914 because we were a warm weather flatland operation. We had, with no legacy, we really didn't have a legacy of mountaineering at all or any kind of mountain activity with the exception of some skiing. And what Ad did was, um, because he's a polyglot, one of the first things he did was identify, procure, and translate the war manuals from the French, the Swiss, the Italian, the German, and the Austrian mountain troops. And that became the foundation for America's fighting manuals. So that's just one of the things he did. The other thing he did was Herman Ogie had a pair of boots on that were these crazy ass, they had these crazy ass soles. And Ad was like, you know, <laughs> Herman, what the hell are those? And Herman's like, ah, oh, you have the same size feet, try them on. And climbing boots up to that point had tricuni nailed soles. So those are the nails that they would nail into the bottoms of the boots. I still can't figure this out. Why would that make and that's you climb to give it, better? That's like a crampon? That's a crampon? But they use them for rock. I got to go get a pair and try it out. But this was the this was like, you know, the the TC pros of the day. Tricuni nailed wow. boots. And the problem with Tricuni nailed boots is that if you are in a war and you're trying to sneak up on the enemy at night and you're climbing rock to do so, they let off sparks. And you can be seen. And so Herman Ogi had this, this crazy ass soul. And it was by an Italian, um, Italian shoemaker named, named Vitali Bramani. Vibram. Vibram. And it was an absolute revolution and a revelation for H. Adams Carter. He put him on. He was like, holy shit, these things are the bomb. They climb so much better than a tricuni nailed boot. So he goes home, and this is just as Hitler starting to roll across Europe and, you know, just getting into the history of World War II and Hitler's advances and how we almost ended up speaking German. I mean, the whole world, Hitler was rolling over Europe. I mean, if we hadn't gone into the war, he, he would have, he would have, we'd be speaking German. And wow. because of that, and because of the fact that Italy joined Germany and Japan as part of the tripartite as part of the axis, getting those boots from Italy was not going to happen. And this yeah. was the case with every single piece of equipment necessary to climb a mountain or to fight a war while climbing mountains. Like the ropes, ropes, ice axe, the ice axes, mm -hmm. the crampons, the carabiners, the pitons, the boots were all made basically in Germany and Austria. So the U.S. Army, when it came about to actually getting its act together enough to start this mountain and mountain unit, and that was a, a, an absolute adventure in its own right, unprecedented unit in a time when we have to go from 200,000 soldiers and eight divisions to 8.8 .8 million soldiers and 215 divisions in three years. Nothing like this had ever been done in the history of man. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. And um, the equipment necessary to 
outfit this one specialized unit. So this one tiny little unit in the midst of this incredible transformation of the American military, all the stuff that they needed to climb and fight mountains was made by our adversaries. So we had to figure, we had to make it ourselves. And that meant requisitioning the materials. You couldn't get those Vitali Brahmani boots. You couldn't get the soles because they were made in Italy and there were shortages and you weren't going to be importing anything from our, from the Axis powers. So this was just such a remarkable um, transformation of American society. And then the whole idea of the specialized mountain unit is this little drop in an ocean of change. And that ocean of change is subjected to so many buffeting winds and waves that the biggest challenge that I'm finding is like telling a story this complicated in a coherent fashion. And so to do so, I, I necessarily have to have these blinders on and not talk about the thousands of people, or at the very least, the hundreds of people who are instrumental to the, the Mountain Division's inception and development. And so instead of trying to talk about everybody, I'm just trying to talk about the climbers, not just about the climbers. I'm, I'm trying to tell the story from the climber's perspective. And I'm trying to focus specifically on John McCown as the protagonist for the story, because he went all the way from 1939, coming out here to the Tetons and learning to climb, coming back in 1940, and then going on an expedition to the Coast Range with his friend Ed McNeil in 1941, and trying, I've got the expedition logbook. They don't mention their actual objective, but Mount Waddington had just been climbed in 1936 by Fritz Wiesner, who had been driven out of Germany by the rise of the Third Reich, and Bill House, one of the great American climbers at the time. It had been climbed in 36 by them, but everybody who had gone into the Waddington Range, into the Coast Range, at that point, there were big teams. John McCown, who had been pulling off audacious stuff here in the Tetons, goes into the Coast Range with him and his buddy Ed. And they go in, I won't even tell you this, or I'm trying to incorporate this into <laughs> this next episode. <laughs> but they just, everything he did, he just fucking went for it. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And he was smart. You know, he went to Wharton, and then he was going to the Univers University of Virginia Law School. He's six foot one and a half and 175 pounds. And he's rugged, like all the descriptions of him that I've been hearing about, everybody says rugged. And, but he's also really charismatic. And he led, he ended up becoming a, um, a second lieutenant and led his troops up Monte Zaracicha. And um, the question is like, why, why do people follow these other people? Like what, what's a leader? And so I've been trying to figure out his personality and his, his attributes, what, what made him so compelling that people were willing to follow him into what could be their own deaths. And as it so happens, I thought I was the only person that knew anything about it. I've since run into a fellow, this will be the next episode, that's been working on a screenplay about him for 23 years. No way. <laughs> yeah. And so he's been, he's been great. And it's been awesome to talk to him about like, well, what do you think about his dad? Like, what was his relationship like with his father? Or what was his relationship like with his brother? And why did people follow him? Why did they find him so compelling? And one of the reasons they found him so compelling was he was a fucking good time. Like he was a kick in the pants. And he was sort of 
blithely unaware of the consequences of having a good time. So he always got in trouble. <laughs> but he's one of those people that you knew you were going to get in trouble when you started out. But you also knew you were going to have the best time of your life. And people Who's would Who's the guy writing the screenplay? Who's his name? Is, his name is Will Holland. And he's a... Uh, I th- he's been a bit of everything, but I think he taught English. He's written some screenplays, so he's a writer. Um, yeah, and he's just he's just been laboring away trying to get this thing to the silver screen without success for many many years. And, and where does this guy live? He's out of um, New England. I think he might be out of New Hampshire these days, but it's wow, been like Maine, New Hampshire. You're in Jackson, Wyoming, and he's way over here, and how you guys and i mean you're off you're after the same guy's information and story it's just such a crazy world isn't it yeah and it really helps to kind of join forces because right. for example he's not a he's a skier but he's not a climber and john skied but i think his climbing became his raison d'etre it became his identity and he got really good really fast and he got really good really fast because he was bold as shit i mean the things he was trying to pull off in his second year of climbing, when he came out here, he jumped on something called the South Face of Bivouac Peak. It's 2,000 feet, and it was first ascended. If you, It was first climbed in 1947 by a fellow named Dick Pownell, who was one of the great Teton pioneers. It was next climbed in 1969 by George Lowe, the great American alpinist, George Lowe, and Yuri Chris, Chris Johnson's, and the next ascent, also by a new route, with, with, with Yuri and Yvon Chouinard in 1969. So John jumps on it. It's like the second climb of his second season of climbing when he didn't have a climbing gym to train in. He jumps on the south face of Bivouac and gets three quarters of the way up before they're getting benighted until they go down. And, <laughs> it, and then the next climb he jumps on was, um, was on the north face of Naperse. And they jumped on a route that had just been climbed by Jack Durrance. And Jack Durrance was the great American rock climber of the day. And like Fritz Feistner, and like Hans Krauss, and like the Stettner brothers, he had learned to climb in Germany. Because the German school, the Munich School of Mountaineering, was very dynamic and relied on pitons as a way to open up the possibility of passages that otherwise were unprotectable and just frankly deadly. And so Durrance had opened up all these routes in the, in the Tetons and <laughs> McCown, after not getting up bivouac, but almost getting up bivouac jumps on a new route that Durrance had just opened up with Hank Coulter on the North face of Naperse, which is like 1500 feet of shite rock. I mean, it's scary as shit. And, um, they did it. And I'm just like, who is this guy? And who, who goes into the, into the coast range as a, as a two person team carrying your own shit. I mean, the guy had, they had 85 pound packs plus a high powered rifle so they could hunt their game while they're going in and out. You know, you can imagine, I mean, these Yukon packs with all the shit on the back of your back that you're carrying oh, yeah. yourself, that is backbreaking. <laughs> and so the whole 90 pound rucksack thing is because these guys used to train with 90 pound rucksacks. They used to train, meaning climb and ski with 90 pounds on their back. And I don't know if you've ever carried a pack that big. Uh, 80 but, pounds. I've been 80 pounds, but never 90 pounds. And I'm and, 150. 
how is that all tiger muscle (laughs) but how is that experience for you i loved it i also like to suffer as you know okay if you like to suffer it's endurable and it helps to have a short-term memory problem but that's right otherwise it's just backbreaking and you know particularly with these guys it doesn't feel sustainable and yet these guys train for three years with these 90 pounds on their backs and they skied with them too. And if you're looking at their skis, we're talking 70 foot, oh, sorry, se- seven <laughs> foot hickory skis, skinny skis, and these little fucking micro leather boots, you know, these flimsy little leather boots and they have rifles sticking up out of them. And so this resulted, they had to modify the Arberg technique just to be able to keep from getting thrown ass over tea kettle into the snow. You can imagine if you have yeah. a swoopy turn and you've got 90 pounds on your back, what does that do You're to keep your going. gravity? You're going to keep going. You're gonna keep on going. <laughs> so there, the modification that they enacted to allow them to be able to carry that 90 pounds resulted in this form of skiing that we take for granted today in America, which is much less swoopy. It's a quieter upper body. It's got a little bit of a crouch to it. And that was not the case before these guys came out of the scene. I mean, this thing, it just goes on and on. Everything is woven in and everything is remarkable. That's what you have your hands full. Yeah. Yep. Yes, I do. But what's cool is you can use interviews for future episodes. You know, I mean, you can use, you have so much content during your interviews with people that some, some things that people say may not be pertinent in that one episode, but in three or four episodes, you'd be like, oh, this guy said this thing that'd be a perfect fit for this episode. But that's another freaking loophole for you is that you have to go and label like chop up your interviews and then label everything just so you know what piece is what. I mean, yeah. it's you, you have epic proportions of work ahead. And I mean, I don't want to make you <laughs> hit your head against the table any more than you already are, but I'm just so excited about your podcast. And it, it, it is truly so like great. a piece of art. Um, so tell, tell me really quick, who, who should listen to this show? Who should listen to 90 Pound Rucksack? Other than me. <laughs> well, uh, and my mom, who's no longer with us, but um, yes, and your wife. <laughs> and my wife. I mean, climbers and skiers. Yeah. First and foremost, I think that if you're interested in climbing and skiing, it's it's just so cool to know where it came from, and it's so yeah. cool. You know, we're all rah, you know we're all badass, and we love doing all this shit. And you look back at what these guys were doing and the equipment they were doing it with. And you just are humbled. You're just so right. humbled at what they were pulling off. I mean, I am so flabbergasted. I went over to the south face of Bivouac the other day, and it, it was a 12-hour day like to get, to get there and back again. And with and all just, the gear, all the all the probably top-of-the-line equipment, you know? And these, yeah. Think about these guys back in the day with the kind of boots they're wearing and the wool knickers and... Wool. I mean, I was just looking at all the army issue equipment of the day. It was all wool, everything. Wool underwear. How would you like to wear thick, itchy wool (laughs) underwear and thick, itchy wool long johns? I know. Socks. (laughs) Stop. What they called blouses, breeches, knickers. I mean, (laughs) can you imagine? So painful. No. (laughs) And so Um, just like, yeah. So climbers and skiers. And I think, you know, World War II, I've never really been, I'm not like a military guy, but um, it's absolutely, it's blowing my mind. 
And yeah. it's so cool to be able to look at it through the prism of what I love to do, you know, climbing and skiing. And it kind of helps me to understand a little bit about the trajectory of world events. I mean, what Hitler was doing, like how he was rolling over Europe is absolutely terrifying. It just, yeah. I, I didn't understand how close we got if we hadn't speaking gone into that war to speaking German. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. So I think if you're interested in, in world events and, and I'm just trying to tease out the human dimension to it, you know, because I think that's so important if it's mm -hmm. just dry facts and it's not, um, then it's not very interesting, but if yeah. you can get into John McCown's psyche, if you can figure out his relationship with his father, who put so much weight on him to be the the alpha dog in everything he did, and he didn't want didn't want it. He didn't want to be a lawyer. I mean, when he applied to, he's coming out of Wharton, and I've got these these documents where he's talking about what his career choice is going to be. He put rec director, <laughs> recreation director. <laughs> well, he had aspirations. Yeah. Well, I just love that. I don't think there were recreation directors there. There are now. Anyway, so, okay, so where do you want this podcast to go? Um, and what are your goals for, what are your goals for the show? And how can we help? How can we as listeners help you get there? You're so kind. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I, I do love creating. I mean, that's the one thing that I seem to go back to again and again. And this is a different medium for me, podcasting. And it's got things that drive me fucking insane, like hating, hating my own <laughs> voice and having to re-record sentences oh, ad nauseum. But By at the same... episode five, you'll stop re-recording yourself. Oh, God, I hope so. You have a great voice. You have a great voice. Do you it's like very your narrow, voice? very storytelling. Well, I didn't. I hated it. So I, I totally relate to what you're saying by re-recording your voice, like every single sentence. I did that mm -hmm. the first five or five to 10 episodes of The Sharp End. Yeah. And now I, I've i learned to accept, like, this is how, what I sound like. This is what I sound like. Thanks, yeah. mom. Thanks, dad. I can't change <laughs> yeah. it. If you don't yeah. like the way my voice sounds, don't listen to the podcast, yeah. you know? And um, I, I don't mind it anymore. It's just, I've accepted that this is my voice and it doesn't wow. bother me like it used to. So I think episode five, You'll start to you'll stop you'll start to stop re-recording your yeah. And that's <laughs> so it'll <aspirational>. go faster. <laughs> Get it down to five and a half weeks per episode. Mm -hmm. I would love to figure out a way to do this in the future, and I've got other book projects that I would like to do. And for better or for worse, they all are climbing related because that's I guess that's kind of my thing. Um, and to be able to figure out how to do it. And actually, you know, make a living on it. That would be pretty terrific. But what's so interesting, I got invited out to Fort Drum in New York um, last month by something called the 18th, uh, the 18th Airborne Corps. And so they are America's contingency, contingency corps. I think of them in terms of, um, you know, the break glass in case of emergency. These are the guys and gals who are going out when the shit hits the fan. And they've got a bunch wow. of divisions underneath them. And one of them is the 10th Mountain Division. And so I went out and it was 
this leadership forum, which meant it was all the generals of all these different divisions. And I ended up hanging out with them at their, you know, we had a social at Major General Anderson's house and he was, he's the, he's the commanding officer of the 10th Mountain Division. And we were hanging out with um, Lieutenant General um, Donahue and he is the head of um, the 18th Airborne. And what's, what blew my mind is that with the war on terror and with Iraq and Afghanistan, all of these units were deployed again and again and again to the Mideast. And in the process, in the process, they lost who they were because they were always a reactive force, you know, that had to go in on an emergent basis and respond to whatever the, you know, the, the calamity of the day was. They are, the 10th Mountain Division is trying to find its way back to its historic identity. And so one of the things that's been just blows my mind, I've become so um, just blown away by the the patriotism of the, the folks that went into World War II. It was such a different time. It was a, it was yeah. a much, in some ways, much more innocent time. It was much less polarized. But I've just come away from their sacrifice, and the 10th Mountain Division got their fucking asses handed to them when they deployed to Italy. I mean, they rolled over the Germans like a tsunami, but they incurred more injuries than any other unit that was fighting in the Italian theater. And they all lost so many people, and they all came back with, you know, basically PTSD before PTSD was a thing. And they all fanned back out in the mountains. Lo and behold, you know, my last job, I was looking at nature as a social determinant of health. There's a reason you go back to the mountains because they make you feel good. And it's better than the bottom of a bottle of vodka. And so I, 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 I just find myself asking, how can I help? How can I help mm. the 10th Mountain Division today find their way back to this unit that does what it historically was meant to do? And that is to be our protection in the mountains. And I think that's what all of us can do. They're trying to figure it out right now. They're just really beginning to get their bearings on how to do that. And I'm standing by the ready trying to figure out how can I serve? How can I serve my country? And I think that's one of the things that um, we can all do these days is how do we serve our country? Because mm -hmm. if it weren't for them, we'd be speaking German. And we take a lot of our, our freedoms for granted and I have a yeah. blessed life. I love my Tetons. I love the mountains. I go out, you know, on every Saturday if I can. And, you know, I get a good old ass whooping and it just puts me into the back seat until, until Wednesday. And I love that. But I wouldn't be able to do that if it weren't for the sacrifice of these folks. And so if I can pay it forward a little bit, I'll do that. And I think it'd be great if everybody could, I don't know, stand by the ready because the 10th Mountain Division was a function of America's civilian climbers and skiers, and perhaps we're going to have an opportunity to serve again. And if so, I'm going to say, yes, sir, what can I do to help? And how will you stand by the ready? Make sure to check out Christian's podcast. Again, it's called the 90 pound rucksack. It's stacked full of riveting climbing history, and he's a really, really good storyteller. If you appreciate climbing history, preserving memories, and dedicated hard work, please consider donating to his research. Don't make me beg. Come on, friends. Let's band together and celebrate good quality work from an extremely dedicated person. 
And then, right after you donate to his show, make sure to subscribe so you can stay updated when he releases new episodes. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.